time to take the next step with Looney Libis. Step 31. Employee Ownership. So last week, my rant on how to make companies more purposeful and, and better ended on this idea that maybe Walmart should be owned by its employees. And so this week, let's go a little deeper on this idea of employee ownership, which to some ears sounds just crazy and sounds maybe socialist, but it's not. So there are four major ways in which employees own companies here in the United States, here in the capitalist system in the United States. The first one's rather easy. The first one are those mom and pop corner stores, the bakeries, the restaurants, and so on. They're owned by the founders. So somebody had the idea to open the corner bakery, and usually that's someone who can bake. And so they had enough money, or they borrowed a little bit of money from friends, or they borrowed it against their house, and they started a bakery, and they own it. And yeah, there are some employees in there who get paid as employees and don't own the bakery. But often in these businesses, it's the founder and the owner who's still there working every day. And so we might call that a family business or even a sole proprietorship. It's, it's the person who really wanted that business to exist, who's there every day to make it exist, to put together the product or the service. It could be an accounting firm or a law firm or, or whatnot. Is the person who started the business that is the main driver, who is the main employee, who when they leave, they worry that the business will still be around when they get back, right? So that, that's one model, and it's a very common model. It's just not a model that scales. You don't see any really large businesses in that format. So second one is extremely common. Uh, every tech company, just about every tech company that you know, has shared some of its ownership with its employees. This is a model that comes out of the venture capital world. And I wish I could tell you why or when or who came up with this idea. I've been, I've been searching and I can't find it. But somewhere in that distant past, distant being 80s, 1980s, not 1880s, 1980s, some venture capitalist had the idea, and it's the right idea, that the employees will care a lot more and work harder and, and put their shoulder into the problems if they own the company. And therefore, the norm in venture-backed startups is that 20% of the company, before the venture capitalists come in, 20% of the company is set aside for employees. And it's handed out not as shares. This is where it gets a little bit odd. The employees don't get handed shares of the company. They're not actually the owners of the company to start with. They're given the right to buy shares in the future. And typically, nobody exercises this right. That's the term of art. Nobody exercises these stock options until the day the company is sold. So what they're really being shared is a piece of the upside, as we would call it. They're being shared a small slice of the acquisition price or the IPO or the IPO price of this company when it has succeeded. And that amount, that slice, could be the size of a house or it could be the size of, of seven digits. It could be a million dollars or $10 million in some cases, depending on the size of the success of this company. And we can look back, you know, again, all the way back to the 80s, to the days of Microsoft, so they went public in the early 80s. They shared shares with tens of thousands of employees, and they rose in value and, in fact, created tens of thousands of Microsoft millionaires. And so here I am in Seattle, and there are literally tens of thousands of millionaires 
who used to work at Microsoft and Amazon and Starbucks and Zillow and a bunch of other companies. Starbucks, of course, not being a tech company, Starbucks being a coffee company, but it too used this model to share shares with its employees. There's nothing in this model that's specific to technology except for the fact that it was invented by a technology venture capitalist 30, 40 years ago. Now, moving on to model number three, we do know this history. So in 1956, this businessman named Louis Kelso, who later became an economist, invented a system called the Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. And it was codified into law here in the United States in 1977 into a set of laws called ERISA. And ERISA is what created the individual retirement account, the IRA, and the 401k, and and all the modern pieces we use to define retirement accounts. Anyway, so the idea of an ESOP is it, it allows the first style of company, the style of company where the founder still owns everything, and convert it over to the style of company where the employees actually own the company. Not the right to own some of the upside when this company sells, but in fact, to own the company now, while the company's operating, and to use that structure to share the profits of the company as it's operating now. And the ESOP format is fairly popular. There's there's 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 companies in the United States that use this form. And one of the most famous is Bob's Red Mill. Uh, and it's famous because in this particular case, Bob unexpectedly, when he was about to retire, kind of, they call it, gave the company to his employees. And the fact is, he didn't give the company to his employees, and neither did Kelso when he did the first ESOP way back when in 56. In fact, it's the employees buying the company from the founders. So the way it works, more or less, is that the founder leaves the company and is promised basically like a mortgage payment. They're promised to get paid over the next 10, 15, 20 years a portion of the profits in order to buy the company. And the owners who are buying the company from the original owner are the employees, the pool of all employees. And in the end, when the structure is is done, when the founder is bought out, now it is actually owned by the employees. And when new employees join in, they're handed some shares. Uh, As the company runs and makes profits, those Profits, a percentage of those profits are shared with all the employees. And when an employee leaves, well, then they're cashed out. They're they're taken out of this system. So it's employee ownership, pretty strict, only for employees, not for retirees. Now, other than that, it looks and feels like a normal company. The shareholders still vote in the board, and the board still manages the managers, and, and the managers run the company. So besides the fact that it's owned by the employees... It, it looks and acts and feels like any other company, except if you think about what kind of decisions are these owners going to make versus like currently the Walmart owners. Well, they're going to make decisions that benefit the employees over everyone else because the owners are the employees. So they're going to make an informed decision about what percentage of those profits get shared with the employees and what percentage are needed to keep the business going or keep the business growing. They're going to make an informed decision about how big they want this business to be. They, they may be happy with how big it is now and decide that, oh, well, we're going to take 80% of the profits for us and, and leave 20% as a buffer or 10% as a buffer. 
as opposed to, no, we need to get as big as possible. We need to pay employees as little as possible. We need to you know, squeeze all the margins out uh, and take the money out of the system. That's not generally what employees would do. And also, if, if an acquirer comes along, you get very different decisions. So if some other company comes along and wants to acquire an employee-owned company, well, first and foremost, they're going to worry about whether or not there's a job at the end of that acquisition. What does that acquisition do, not only to their job, but their ownership of this company? And so you see a whole lot fewer acquisitions of employee-owned companies. Now, taking this idea to the extreme, we get the fourth model, which is the co-op model, or the worker co-op model, to be specific. And in a co-op, it's still employee-owned. Every employee owns the company. The difference is that every employee owns exactly one share. In the ESOP model, people own different numbers of shares, but in the co-op model, it's one share per person, and it's one vote per share. And so the m biggest example of this in the world is Mondragon. It is not, in fact, one co-op. It's a family of 250-ish co-ops based in Mondragon, Spain, which is the Basque part of Spain. And in Mondragon, the system's pretty simple. Uh, when you join Mondragon, you're given the choice on whether you want to be an owner, and if you are, well, then you buy your one share, and it's about $2,000. And if you don't have $2,000, they will let you buy in over the course of two years at, at basically a no-interest loan. So you buy your one share. That one share gives you two things. It gives you the right to vote, and the things that are sent in front of the owners to vote are not every single decision. This, this is not a, a necessarily consensus-driven organization. They're still managers but it gives you the right to vote for who's the manager. And it gives you a share of the profits, just like the ESOP model. But the difference, again, is in the co-op model, everybody has exactly one share. So every employee gets exactly the same amount when they share profits. And in the ESOP model, that's not true because different people have different numbers of shares depending on their importance, we can say, to the company or their maybe we could say the rarity of their skills. We, we don't need to go into that right now. But... In both those models, in the ESOP model and the co-op model, there's a percentage of the profits that's shared with all the employees, which makes it so the employees want to do whatever they can to increase profits. And that's not just being nice to the next customer. Making more profits might be fixing the processes inside the company. It might be raising your hand at a meeting to say, I think there's a better way to do this. And that idea, that really simple idea of raising your hand and saying, I think I can improve this company, is something you don't see in most companies. It's, it's a, a bit of culture that's missing from the traditional, we'll say normal way of owning companies, which is having outsiders own the company and employees just being paid. If you have your employees just being paid, they don't have that incentive to raise their hand and say, I think I can make this company better. Why should they? What's in it for them? They're being paid to do a job, and when that job is over, they want to go home, and they go home. But in an employee-owned company, yeah, they're still being paid to do the job, but it's their company. They own a piece of it. And so if they can make it a little bit better, and if all of them can each make it a little bit better, well, then it's going to make more profits. It's going to have happier customers. It's going to be a better company. They're going to be more proud of it. And especially they're going to be more proud that they helped make it better. And they're going to want to raise their hand again and, and again and again and make it a better and better and better. And we've seen this. This is the lean startup model, right? This is the Toyota production system. 
everybody jumping in to make things just a little bit better than they were last week. And when you do that enough times, you get a much stronger, better company. And so it's not just about who shares the wealth. It's about creating companies together. Employee ownership is this idea that you're not just all there to work in the same place at the same time. You're all there to build a company together. It takes effort to keep a company going. Sure, we're talking about startups on this podcast, and it takes a humongous amount of effort to get a company up and running and profitable. But you know what? I'll give you a secret. It takes an enormous amount of effort to keep a company going and keep it profitable. And when you get to a certain scale, well, you get some momentum to help you do that. But, but on the scale of decades, it still takes an enormous amount of effort to keep a company going and keep a company growing and keep a company profitable. And so one tool you can use, one tool you can figure out how to use right now is how to engage your employees through ownership. To buck the norm and follow this this pattern here. That's not a new pattern again, right? ESOPs are from 1956. Co-ops are, are hundreds and hundreds of years old. But take one of these old ideas, pull it into your company right now, pull it into your startup and figure out how you can use that to make your company grow better, to, to, to get every one of your employees to want to help you grow your company and make it better and make it our company, our with you and all your employees, as opposed to just my company, as in just you. And that'll be your homework this week. Until next time.